We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Terror in the City of Champions. The publisher, Lions Press, the author, Tom Stanton. Please join me as we welcome Tom Stanton to the clubhouse. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tom. And just briefly, for, for some of those who may not know your background here or listening to the podcast, uh, Tom Stanton is author of several nonfiction books, among them the critically acclaimed Tiger Stadium memoir, The Final Season, and the Quill Award finalist, Ty and the Babe. A journalist for more than 30 years, he co-founded The Voice newspapers in suburban Detroit and served as editor for 16 years winning numerous press awards, including a Knight Wallace Fellowship at the University of Michigan. Thank you. So it's a pleasure to welcome you to the clubhouse. Oh, it's great to be here, Jay. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, before we get into the book, just I know you, you speak about it a little bit, but if you could just tell us how, the, how this project, uh, which is somewhat intense, uh, came about. Yeah, it starts in my childhood. Uh, I grew up in the early 70s. And I, I don't know if any of you are from Detroit, but if you were a sports fan growing up in Detroit in the early 70s, the only thing you could look upon was the 68 Tigers. And I was too young to appreciate them. By 71, 72, none of my teams, the Tigers a little bit were uh, in 72, decent. But the Red Wings were lousy, the Lions were terrible, the Pistons were no good. And so it was a uh, kind of a slightly demoralizing time to be a sports fan in Detroit if you're a kid. And at the holidays, my dad who grew up in a Polish family, Polish Catholic family, 10 children. Uh, the aunts and uncles would return to the Detroit area. They'd come to the basement of our home in the, at Christmas time under the twinkling lights and the smell of kielbasa wafting on the air and lasagna. And they'd reminisce about their childhood in mid-1930s Detroit. And I was so envious because my uncles would talk about this seven-month time frame when the Tigers won a World Series, the Lions won a championship. I mean, Lions have never done anything in my lifetime. Lions won and the Red Wings won, and at the same time, the uncrowned, undefeated boxing champion of the world was, uh, was on the rise, Joe Lewis. And I was so, you know, I was just so enamored with that. But there was this other darker story that one of my uncles mentioned, my Uncle Clem, who by that point had, a, had uh, parts of his gray beard, and I don't know if he was using the cane yet, but he, he was a radical in, in Detroit. And, uh, he would tell me this haunting story about walking in the, the black entertainment district, Paradise Valley, when he was a young aspiring writer with his brother, who was also in his early 20s, and a couple other artsy friends. And this car pulls up beside them, two white guys in the car, and start asking, what are you doing here? Why are you here? You don't belong here. This is not your neighborhood. And you know, one of my uncles is a fighter, so he's getting tense stuff ready to do battle. and, and uh, they go back and forth. And my uncle didn't tell me at the time why he was really there. It was to score a reefer, but you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't tell me that, the 11-year-old me that, but learned that later. So these guys identified themselves as undercover cops. They were in an undercover car, and when my one uncle started giving them guff, they pulled out weapons and ordered them into the car. And my uncle uh, thought he was uh, going to uh, be delivered dead into a ditch. Uh, he thought he had encountered the Black Legion, the infamous Knight Riders, 
in Detroit. As it turned out, they were actually cops, and he just ended up in jail for the <laughs> night. But, but nonetheless, that's when the first time I heard of Black Legion and doing other research over the years, uh, it would pop up. But it's one of those uh, stories that has just kind of been mostly lost to time. It's interesting to me how some tales we learn emerge and stay with us and uh, become dominant you know, decades on. If any of you are Detroiters, if I had said, tell me the name of a gang in 1930s Detroit, somebody probably would have said, oh, the Purple Gang, which is a, a Jewish rum-running gang and made famous by Elvis and his son, you know, Jailhouse Rock. But uh, that's when I, I first got it. And so I s decided finally to, to dive into the story. And so I went through 900, 1,000 pages of uh, FBI documents, um, uh, Michigan State Police files, innumerable thousands of newspaper stories to put together these two concurrent stories which overlap because the guys in the Black Legion, the Black Legion is is basically a Ku Klux Klan type organization but more violent and it's a secret society so you could be killed for revealing that you were a member uh, and so the, the two stories overlap um, and uh, the Black Legion members, many of them it turns out there were tens of thousands in the Midwest, uh, were uh, in Detroit area baseball fans, which is kind of unusual when you think of the biases that a Klan-like organization has in terms of what people they don't like because one of the huge stars on the Detroit team is the Jewish first baseman, Hank Greenberg, and the, the star veteran player on the team is second baseman who if you were a Catholic kid and your mom didn't want you playing baseball, you could point to this guy who went to church every day, who wasn't going to marry until his mother died, this good Catholic boy, you know, in his 30s at that point, uh, Charlie Geringer. And so these are the two stars on the team, and, uh, and yet the Black Legion is planning murders and, and uh, whippings and other crimes around the schedule of the Tigers. They're using baseball to lure people to their death. Um, and they may have, I wasn't, I don't know, I don't want to give too much of the book away, and they may have actually lured in a, uh, a member of the team. Well, I think a good way to, to, to start, and I, uh, to those who come to the clubhouse a lot, they know I don't like uh, when the author just, which we don't really have, the author opens the book, just reads three pages, and everyone falls asleep. Uh, and I've only done this a few times. The last time I did it was when uh, Bill Pennington was here with the Billy Martin book, and I just wanted to read one paragraph of his book uh, because I thought it was so beautifully written and it let you know what you were in for. Uh, Bill went on to win a lot of awards. I can't make any promises on that. Yeah, but we'll, see, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I appreciate any weight you can But I'll try. On this. Uh, read it really good, okay? <laughs> so I just want to read the opening paragraph of this book and then you can take it from there uh, okay. about that. Uh, chapter one, uh, entitled Mickey and Dayton. Mickey Cochran stepped off the train into the night air at Michigan Central and grinned for the press photographers. As he removed his fedora, he revealed the two physical features everyone always noticed about him. His helmet of brilliant black hair, darkest coal smoke, and glimmering like obsidian in the camera flash, and his protruding ears, which over the years had been compared to a mule's and a dairy cow's, and to the handles of a milk jug and a sugar bowl, 
and have been said to be so large that they could cast a shadow over Philadelphia's shy park. <laughs> That's the first paragraph of the book. <laughs> well, Mickey Cochran is, is one of the key characters uh, in this time. So, I mean, he's coming into Detroit in 1933. Frank Navin needs his team to turn it around financially because uh, Detroit is one of the city's hardest hit by the Great Depression. You have an unemployment rate area of 40%. And, um, and so attendance was spectacularly low in 1933. So some of you know the story probably that they uh, even originally tried to hire Babe Ruth as a, uh, as a draw to be manager of the team. It's probably good, good for both of them and didn't work out, but they went to Mickey Cochran, the, the star catcher of the Philadelphia A's, and Connie Mack was unloading players at that point, and so it happened. And, uh, and so he comes into a Detroit that is, is just uh, down on its luck, you know, having prospered uh, throughout the 20s, all the skyscrapers being built in Detroit. Uh, Detroit had risen by 1930 to be the fourth largest city in the country. Uh, and, uh, and so a lot had good been happening, but nothing in the sports field, and now the Great Depression was here. And so Cochran is hired to energize this team. Uh, he becomes the player manager, and he's this inspirational guy that the young guys, the young ball players, believe when he, they start talking about uh, and he starts talking about, uh, you know, we have the talent on this team to, to go all the way. You know, the veterans are kind of, you know, laughing behind his back, you know. You know he's BSing these young kids, but the young kids are buying into it. And he was, and I don't mean this in a flip way, but seriously, uh, he was such a high-strung, moody, intense individual that if he were around today, I, I have no doubt that the man would be on uh, mood-altering medication. And, I, and I, I don't say that lightly, because he, he really had extreme highs, extreme lows. After some losses, he would lock himself away for 24 hours till, you know, till the next game started, wouldn't have anything to do with anybody. He, um, by the end of the book, oh, this is, we probably won't talk too much about this, he will, in the uh, spring of 1936, suffer a uh, a uh, nervous breakdown mid-season and be flowing out to Wyoming to recover for, for several weeks right, right as the uh, season's going on. I have theories that there are various reasons for that, but, but, uh, but nonetheless, he comes into town and he starts to inspire this team, takes them uh, to the 1934 World Series, and at this point I would throw you candy bars if you could tell me who the uh, star pitcher of the 1934 Cardinals was, but Dizzy Dean, of course, right? And so Dizzy Dean, uh, Dizzy, yes, Dizzy, Dizzy and, and the Cardinals win that World Series. There's a riot at Navin Field uh, near, uh, in the last game, actually. Um, they nearly have to cancel the game because Detroit fans are so dejected that they're going to lose the World Series that their team deserved to win after this spectacular 34 season. And then 35, they do win the World Series. And it's, it was just a phenomenal time, the, the way Detroit rallied a, around this team. I don't know if I'm talking too much. No, no, it's perfect. Not, so. No, that's perfect. So one of the uh, stars of the 34 team was this guy who became a uh, national figure along with his girlfriend. And, uh, you know, in the summer of 34, actually right around this time, he won his first of several, uh, first of many games in a row. Right. 
9, 10, 11, 12 straight games, 13, 14, 15. By this point, he's near closing in on the American League record of 16 straight victories. And the whole nation is paying attention to him. And right as this is happening, he appears on the top-rated radio show hosted by Rudy Valley for Fleshman Hour. And he goes up there, and it's scripted, a scripted line that he's going to say that's going to follow him till his dying die, until his dying day. And it's, you know, he goes down there, he says, hello, Ma, how am I doing, Edna? And, and instantly, whenever he appears in a ballpark, from there on out, it's, how am I doing, Edna? Where's Edna? Edna's his high school sweetheart. They're going to get married. Now, the opponents, you, you know, and a lot of your baseball fans, you know that in the 30s, uh, ballplayers heckle one another unmercifully in nasty ways. Whatever you can use, you know, I mean, nothing's out of bounds. And, and so the Edna story becomes, you know, when he's having a bad outing, how the F is he doing now, Edna, you know, from the, from the <laughs> other bench. But uh, Edna becomes a personality, and it's kind of a love, it is a love story that's up there. A central part of the uh, the book, and I throw that out there now because a lot of the story is pretty dark and and uh, and murderous and, yeah. and uh, evil. And well, without we don't want to give too much away necessarily, but about that murderous evil part, the first chapter is Mickey and Dayton. So, so we know who Mickey is. If you could tell us a little bit about who Dayton is, since he was not a necessarily a great ball player. Not a ball player at all. <laughs> he, was a, he was a guy who was leading a, a, an average, very mundane life, wrapping pipes at the power plant in Detroit. And we'll get to Dayton in a minute, and I'll just back up slightly. The way you became a member of the Black Legion is if you were a white Protestant male, and one of your friends came up to you and said, some, some buddies are getting together, we're going to go play cards, or we're going to go out drinking, we're going to have a, a party, we're going to have a barbecue out in the field. So you'd be going, thinking that you were going to one of those things, and you might end up in the, the basement of a uh, uh, Masonic temple, or you might end up in a church basement, you might end up in the Odd Fellows Hall, you might end up in a field, a darkened field near midnight, uh, surrounded by hundreds of other folks whom you quickly realize as lights are dimmed and a red light flashes on weaponry are robed, hooded, black robes with skulls and crossbones on. And soon you've, you are told that you've heard too much to not be a member of the Black Legion and weapons are pointed at you as you take the Black Oath agreeing to go to your death uh, if you ever talk about this or if you ever fail to uh, to follow through on whatever crimes you're expected to commit. And so literally tens of thousands of people are, uh, many of them against their will, are inducted into the Black Legion this way. And if you decide you're not going to go to a meeting, you know, a, a gang will eventually show up on your porch and either convince you to go or you'll end up in a field tied to a tree with uh, 13, 14, 15 guys each taking a lash at your bare back. Uh, you could get murdered. There were uh, gatherings where people were either murdered or where murders were faked, hangings. So as this is happening, you know, a lot of people are just terrified as you're being inducted into this organization. You have no idea what's part of your evening. 
Some people like the idea, and Dayton Dean is one of those guys. He said, this is fun to Dayton Dean. It's so much better than his day-to-day -day life. This, this is like a radio serial or a, a movie, you know, some G-Man movie. And so he embraces this, and, it, and uh, he rises quickly through the Black Legion ranks. And there'll be times when he falls back down for little mistakes he's made. But he gets brought into a variety of plots. And the, the Black Legion had some grand ambitions, and then they had also lots of petty things. They might, uh, if you're a fellow member, they might decide to, uh, that you needed to fire your Catholic housekeeper. Or maybe you need to kick your sickly mother-in-law out of the house if she was native, not native born. Uh, or, you know, uh, they might ask you to attempt to assassinate the mayor of one of the suburbs or publisher of one of the newspapers or uh, liberal attorney. The Black Legion at its heart, in addition to the usual biases <coughs> that the Klan has, you know, you know, well, they consider themselves against all isms except Americanism. <coughs> so, so communism, socialism, uh, unionism, uh, Judaism, Catholicism, Negroism, you, know, you name it. They were against all of those things. And, um, and so uh, some of their broader plans were, for example, they, they looked into uh, how can we inject typhoid into milk and cheese supplies that are going to Jewish neighborhoods? That, that seemed like a good idea to them. Or to inject poison through the keyholes of synagogue or uh, explore various bombs. They, uh, they killed, um, often faking the deaths of suicides, uh, many union organizers. This is uh, mid-30s Detroit, so this is a very volatile time uh, in Detroit. And uh, we don't know necessarily how many people they killed. One of the state police uh, captains who still wanted to look into the Black Legion three years after they had been exposed, but was running into dead walls every it was running to walls everywhere because, because there were so many political figures involved in the Black Legion uh, that uh, he estimated the number of 50 in, in Southeast Michigan. And he was working till, you know, as I mentioned, several years after everybody else had given up trying to get the FBI to come into the investigation. And it's so interesting to be reading FBI documents signed by J. Edgar Hoover, not our area. Uh, you know, anyway, I'm going off and off there. But Dayton Dean was the guy who would become a gunman for the Black Legion and uh, be part of two of its most famous murders, uh, the last one leading to the exposure. And he would, uh, to his whatever credit you want to give him, uh, would be the person who would turn on the Legion and testify against the only one, really, who would. And that's why only uh, convictions were only, uh, only came through for two murders. I could tell you about murders. I mean, such a, I don't, I don't want to depress you all, but I mean, it's, it's just like a beautiful June night. But. <laughs> well, all right, so we have Mickey and Dayton. Dayton and his crew are hiding behind robes with their views and actions. We also have, just in the 1930s in Detroit, we have somebody who's also in a robe of sorts, uh, a father. If you could speak a little bit about this very, very powerful father yeah. at that time in Detroit. 
I'll so, call it based in Detroit. Sure, yeah. yeah. So uh, obviously this is pre-television. Radio is the major medium and the most one of the most popular radio figures in the nation is the anybody know who it is? Father Coughlin. Hey, lots of everybody knows it. Father Coughlin, uh, who is broadcasting uh, from Royal Oak, Michigan, just across the Detroit border. He's getting so much mail that they actually establish a post office for him. He's getting more mail than anybody in the country. People are sending him checks. When he starts out on the radio, uh, he's talking uh, social justice kind of issues, and it evolves into politics. Uh, he endorses FDR in 32. By 36, he's turned on FDR. He's, uh, he's both too liberal and not liberal enough for him, and, and then you know not against communism enough. Um, Coughlin's an, uh, an odd assortment of, of uh, issues and feelings. Um, and at the, in the time frame of the book, which is 33 to mid-36, Father Coughlin is not yet the raging anti-Semite that he will become. But you're starting to see signs of, of that in, in his, his uh, in his uh, sermons on the air. He has an audience that ranges at a low end from 10 million to a high end of 40 million weekly. He's a, a, a major force. And FDR is worried that he's going to join forces with Huey Long and that they're going to run a candidate. Huey Long is going to die before that happens. But uh, Cognum will run a candidate. Dayton Dean gets assigned to, to start following Coughlin, start going to is uh, meetings of the National Union for Social Justice because he's Catholic after all, right? <laughs> and he's a major figure. And uh, odd thing happens, Dayton Dean starts going to this meeting, meetings, and at one of them, Father Coughlin is, is up, up there sermonizing, and he says, there are people in this audience today who want to kill me. And, and in Dayton's memory, Coughlin looks right at him. And, uh, and, uh, and at that moment, and having listened to Coughlin, the various thing he espouses, Dayton decides he doesn't really want to kill Coughlin, that he likes what he's talking about, except for the fact that he's Catholic. You know, this is what, he agrees with most of what uh, Coughlin's happened. Nonetheless, and we, I wasn't able to tie this crime to the Black Legion. Um, but I wasn't able to separate it from the Black Legion. There was an unsolved fire uh, that burned down Coughlin's original church right at this time. Um, and uh, his house had been bombed uh, a little bit earlier than that. So he, he was a target on and off. But Dayton Dean is this guy who changes his mind. He, he starts to get close to somebody that he's following, like the liberal uh, uh, civil rights attorney, Maurice Sugars. Dayton moves into the same apartment complex. You know, it's his job to bump him off. But um, you know, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't want to do the bomb thing because it might hurt some kids. He's got a conscience of some sort, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, he just wants to get the attorney. Yeah. But uh, but then he starts to ask around town, and there are people who like the attorney. You know, he's doing good things for veterans like himself. You know, he's a Navy veteran. Dayton would probably tell you. I, Killed some black people in, during the race ride in DC in 1919. That was one of his things. Anyways, they, I just, I'm just rambling here. No, so that, uh, so we have Dayton Dean, 
the father, Henry Ford, and then we also have the star who you, you uh, referenced earlier. The st at the same time, the star of the baseball team is Hank Greenberg. Uh, how is all that coming together at, at one time in, in Detroit? Yeah, well, it, except for having no black players, the, the Detroit Tigers represent Detroit as diverse as, as the city. And, and Detroit is a city of uh, folks who have moved up for automobile jobs. They've, come up from the south, uh, they, they come overseas because you know, decade prior it was a great way to make a living, earn money, and so consequently you have on the ball team that same, those same range of elements. You have some college educated guys like Mickey Cochran, uh, you have uh, sons of uh, physicians, uh, you have a orphan who was raised on the street, you have one who's the son of a trapeze artist. Uh, and you, Hank Greenberg, as you know, is from, from New York, right? And uh, would have played probably for the Yankees, he said, if Derek hadn't been anchored at first base blocking his way. And uh, so he ends up with the, the Tigers. And, and as you no doubt know, I mean, uh, he endured all sorts of uh, anti-Semitism uh, whenever he took the, to the field, certainly in those early years probably throughout his career, but it was especially harsh in those early years. And that was no different even in his home field of Detroit. Henry Ford was a baseball fan. Later in life came to it uh, and uh, started sponsoring the, the World Series broadcast. Uh, and he used to rationalize, and, and you know Henry Ford is, is anti-Semitic as well, he used to rationalize that, well, with nothing to back this up, that well, Hank Greenberg must just, he's just part Jewish. Jewish. He, used to tell his right-hand man, Harry Bennett. A little bit Jewish. Just a little bit. He's not, not really Jewish. So he, that's how he, he legitimized the fact that he rooted for, for Hank Greenberg and would give him a, a job, uh, uh, as he did for lots of ballplayers. Um, but his right-hand man is, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Harry Bennett, but Harry Bennett was a uh, closer to Henry Ford than Henry's own son, Edsel. He was the dark, shadowy figure that allowed uh, Henry to uh, kind of live out some of his more miserable uh, elements of his personality. And he is, around this time, he is largely suspected. Again, the vast majority of people who belong to the Black Legion uh, were never outed. Uh, but he is largely suspected to be a uh, one of the guys behind the Black Legion. Certainly used it within the, the Ford factories to keep uh, unions out. It was estimated that half of the departments at the Ford Rouge plant were controlled by Black Legion members, majority Black Legion members. Uh, Harry Bennett, at the same time, is becoming close friends with Mickey Cochran. Okay. Harry Bennett likes to surround himself with athletes and uh, take them out on his huge, his huge yacht, take them to his fortress mansion that's um, near Ann Arbor, uh, literally a, a mansion with gun turrets and hidden uh, escape hallways and steps that are asymmetric, they're not symmetrical, uh, so that when the lights are out, if he's being pursued, you know, somebody's not gonna know that they're gonna trip in the wrong spot. Uh, there are, he has pet lions, but he, surra he surrounds himself with sports figures and he becomes so close to Mickey Cochran that Mickey's kids uh, will lovingly refer to Harry as Uncle Harry. And uh, 
And I guess that's probably as far as I'll take that part of the story. Yeah. All right, well, that's, we've set the stage well. And uh, I know we have an extremely knowledgeable crowd, as always, in the clubhouse. So does anyone want to lead off with the first question? Tom? Uh, this is kind of a two, two part. Until I started reading your book, and, you know, I, I thought of myself as a fairly sophisticated student of history and things like that. I never heard of the Black Legion. So the first question is why. And the second question is, did you meet or encounter any resistance in your research in the Black Legion? The, I wish I had a great answer for the, the first part of it. I, I'm not sure why, other than... Um, it just came and then kind of disappeared. It, it was major when it happened, when it was exposed in May of 36. It was like a, a Black Legion hysteria that spread over part of the country, and it's reflected in the letters that people are sending to J. Edgar Hoover, hundreds of them, people turning in neighbors. And what made it so terrifying is that it was a secret society. Wives were, fi wives were finding out their husbands belonged. People were being arrested, you know, your, your son, your, uh, your uncle, your father, um, being brought in on suspicion, belonging to the Black Legion. And so that, that spread this hysteria, which, as I mentioned beforehand, spawned uh, not only a Humphrey Bogart movie that same year, but a, there was another uh, like a lower level movie. There was a play, a couple books, uh, works of art. It was a big deal. And so I don't know, that that's, is interesting to me why some things prevail in time and, and we remember. Up, did, I mean, other than your family thinking, were you aware of? Not, not other than having heard that story and then being aware of it and occasionally seeing a couple pages like in a, like the Green, uh, probably both of the Greenberg books probably mentioned the Black Legion just in terms of setting the scene. Hank was playing in Detroit at the time that this, you know, this racist terrorist organization was operating. Did it get to the East? What's that? Did it get to the East? You know, they like to say that they were national, but really it was, it uh, was flourishing in Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana, and a little bit in some of the border states. Uh, if you, if any of you are uh, fans of literature and know the work of Richard Wright and the, the novel Native Son, uh, which the lead character in there is Bigger Thomas, and I do not remember the name of the actual real life person that that's based on, but when after Black Legion uh, was exposed, one of the murders he committed uh, of a woman in a hotel. Uh, the little boy wakes up and is asking this man, did, why did is you, my mom sleeping? And he writes on the, he tells him that I'm a doctor, so I could go back to sleep, but he writes on the mirror, Black Legion murder. And so there are lots of copy, there are a lot of people trying to associate with it. Most of it though, you know, what you said, it was within that three state region and it started uh, in Ohio, in Bel Air, Ohio faded away in the mid-20s, uh, was revived by this, uh, this electrician in Lima, Ohio, and he said he was the figurehead. Uh, he said he was the, the main guy, uh, but most people believe due to the, the organization of it. Was it and it's height at the, with the strong industrial units around, uh, unions around the uh, steel and yeah, well, I mean, this is in the formative years, so I mean, in, uh, you know, we haven't had in Detroit the, you know, the big events related to like the Battle of the Overpass and the Flint since that sit-down strike haven't happened yet. So it's still Henry Ford would be the one who fights till the end to keep unions out. But um, so it does, yeah, you find there's 
you find that the Black Legion mirrors during the Depression mostly all employed in factories. They have jobs at the time when a lot of other people don't. And, and did you encounter any kind of resistance in researching this? Well, um, we're a couple, we're, most cases, two generations removed, but at least one generation, because somebody who was a Black Legion member would have to be 100 years old by this point. And so I tried to, let me just give you one example. Um, I tried to track down the, the you know, family members of the leader, Bert Effinger, and there are lots of Effingers <coughs> around uh, Lima, Ohio, in that part of Ohio, and nobody, nobody responded to <laughs> emails, to phone calls, to letters, uh, to Facebook friending. <laughs> Just, uh, <laughs> but I did, uh, now since then I'm, I'm getting, since the book has come out. Is there a theory that you've developed or anyone else, I haven't read your book, that uh, perhaps I mean, yeah, I don't. Um, I think uh, it was more likely his right-hand man, Harry Bennett. I mean, Henry Ford. I'm not familiar with Detroit history, but there's this uh, wonderful museum, Henry Ford Museum in Greenfield Village. And by that point, even though Henry Ford was still very much involved in his automobile company, he was much more interested in acquiring things. He was a, he was in his, he was 70 years old. He was interested in acquiring buildings for Greenfield Village, and so I think his interest was elsewhere. But he had, you know, Harry Bennett was to do what he needed to do to keep the unions out. And so I think it's more likely Harry Bennett saw his representative. I think uh, the Black Legion was actually concurrently with the Klan, with the Ku Klux Klan. Weren't they actually an offshoot or breakaway or something? Yeah. Did, so they, did they compete with each other? Did they get yeah, each other? The Klan still existed, uh, but it, it had fallen. <laughs> I don't want to use the word hard times you know, for the kid. <laughs> it had dissipated a bit in the leading up to the end of the 1920s. And the Black Legion, the guy who started it in Bel Air, Ohio, uh, he, he, he was a Klan member and he splintered off. He wanted, he wanted more excitement uh, than the Klan was providing. And a lot of Klan members resented the dues they had to pay, uh, felt that people were making money off it. Um, nobody was really making money off the Legion. But yeah, they, they were enemies actually. Once the Legion was exposed, uh, the head of the, the Klan was pushing for a full investigation by the FBI. Mm -hmm. oh. Did the Bogart uh, movie have any uh, effect in the ultimate uh, uh, exposure of them? Or was it, was it shot in Hollywood? Or? It, it was uh, pulled from the headlines movie. So after, you know, after people learn about the Black Legion, then the movie gets made rather quickly, actually. But two movies get made, yeah. And he wasn't a, a big star yet, either. I mean, he was in it. I guess not. I, 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 didn't, recognize, I, mean, I didn't recognize him from the, the kind of roles he usually played. Because he's the, he's the bad guy, you know. That's <laughs> yes, Chris. Hey, how are you? Um, Wow, yeah, so before, uh, no relation that I know of. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so the, the field that was at Michigan and Trumbull before Navin Field was built, Navin Field became Briggs Stadium, which became Tiger Stadium. Before that, there was a Bennett Park there, which was named for the catcher of the 1800s who lost his legs in a streetcar accident.
No relation to Harry's phones, I know. Yes. How did the Black Legion actually rationalize rooting for the Tigers when there's two-thirds of the G-men, as you called it, one was Catholic, one was Jewish? Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like they would root for them to go over for everything. <laughs> the Tigers don't win. You know, a lot, of, a lot of times, like when you when I was reading uh, court transcripts, um, when people are rationalizing their biases and their bigotry, you know, they would kind of differentiate between the individual and the group. Like I, some of the guys who would belong, and they're taking these oaths, said, well, you know, my neighbor is Catholic, and he's like, he's a great guy, you know. Yeah, but we're, we're, we're not, you know, yeah, individually, some of those guys are fine, but you know we don't want the Pope running things from Rome. You know, we don't want to run the, the country. So they rationalize it that way. It was kind of like, an, yeah, he's not like the others. Kind of thing. I'm, not, I'm not saying it makes sense. <laughs> no, it definitely doesn't. Because yeah. I was thinking, and I had gotten your book prior, and great book, that if Arthur Lizzie wanted to like um, do the temple, like you were saying, what if Hank Greenberg was actually in that temple? Yeah, yeah. It's I'm, I, I think we're probably we both be giving them more credit for thought than they oh, okay. <laughs> than they might have put into it. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's a good. I mean, that's ultimately the uh, with any you know biased organization like that. And my second question was the Purple Navy big in Detroit around this time as well. I don't know if it's mentioned in the book. The Purple Gang. The pur oh, I thought it was called. The Purple Gang was, uh, well, so as my book opens in December 33, Prohibition is just ending in Detroit. And so Prohibition was uh, the big money-making enterprise for the Purple Gang, which was a, a, an all-Jewish gang yeah. in, in Detroit. And, uh, and which also, you know, some people believe that the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago was brought in to do that. Uh, but by, th by this point, they're not, they were doing different things. They're they're profit oriented, and they're they're not mixed up in the Black Legion. Well, I was just thinking it would be interested if the two of them got together because they the Black Legion hates you. <laughs> a battle. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Purple Gang they had professional executioners, yeah. and <laughs> the and this this is actually the Purple Gang is important in this one sense that the reason they get exposed is. Uh, Usually, uh, the people that, they're, that the Legion's knocking off, the police don't really, the, the police which are run in Detroit by a reactionary, very conservative anti-union uh, police commissioner don't really want to, don't care about some of the people who are dying and they don't investigate fully. You know, you find a body of some union organizer and, and somebody tells you, oh, it was another union organizer who bumped them off, there was factions within the union and okay, yeah, we're, we're not gonna look into that. Uh, however, the murder of Charlie Poole, uh, Charlie Poole was bumped off uh, because one of the legionnaires um, had a crush on his wife who he had grown up with and he didn't like the fact Charlie was mur uh, married to her, uh, but they spread this rumor that Charlie had beat his wife and the baby was, was she was pregnant, the baby was going to die, and so they take him out for, for street, street justice. When police find the body, they look at it and say, hey, this, this looks like, and I don't remember which Purple Gang member, this looks like I mean, it's Frank Millman of the Purple Gang. And so they start investigating, they send the fingerprints off to, uh, to DC, to the FBI, and it 
comes back at identity. And so they start investigating this crime as a result. But just as a point, Dayton Dean is the one shooting, and he's got two guns, and, and police should have realized when they looked at the body that this wasn't a professional execution because nobody shot him in the head or, I mean, his, his torso, his arms, his legs, you know, it was poorly shot. Some of the shots missed. I, I, you know, it, uh, his murder occurred, if it was in fact a murder, because there is some debate. But, right, right, yeah. yeah. So that, that happens, I believe, in 1931, uh, which is two years before my frame of uh, the, the focus comes out. I do mention it, and it, it's up for debate. Uh, the Legion was strong in that area. His widow was the one who put forth the idea that it was the Black Legion that did it. Uh, Malcolm himself went back and forth. He said, at some appearances, he, he would say that his father was killed by the Black Legion. At others, he would uh, say he was didn't know about that. Um, and again, it, you had a you know you had a different level of investigation that happened when a black person died. When Silas Coleman is lured out to Pinckney, Michigan, and shot at the Ford Mill pond. Uh, the police figure uh, it's just some other blacks killed them. You know, kind of interrace thing, and they don't investigate. You know, we have other murders. Silas Coleman had been lured out to Pinckney because one of the local Black Legion regiment commanders wanted to know what it feels like to shoot a black man. There's no other reason. It was a for fun killing. They released him at the pond, and and that wasn't linked until. Uh, the Black Legion gets exposed, wasn't investigated. Uh, and one of the other sidelights, I know I'll stop on this uh, topic, but Dayton Dean testified that the Ford Mill Pond uh, held six or seven, at least, other bodies that had been dumped into a sinkhole there. Uh, Henry Ford denied permission for the pond to be drained. And, uh, mm. You mentioned a lot of your research was uh, newspapers and so on. Did you find that there were any journalists at the time who were critical or who were coming out to the press in any way informative to? Yeah, and so there is there are only a couple mentions of the Black Legion until the Charlie Poole murder exposes how huge this is. And they come up in almost a laughing way of, you know, police arrested uh, somebody with, um, you know, hoods and skull and crossbone outfits in their, in their cars and some weapons. And, and the cases, cases incidentally all get dismissed. Enforcing for the Black Legion members what they've been told all along, we've got friends in high places, if you turn on us, you're gonna be framed. Um, and actually one of the things I reveal in the book is that the, I mean, it wasn't known in his, time, but by many people, that the police commissioner of Detroit belongs to the Black Legion. He may not be aware of all the killings taking place, but he does uh, belong. Um, did I answer? I just wondered if the... Yeah, so the, the reporters. How many newspapers were there? 
So in Detroit there are three, but it be, it's a national story. The New York Times is sending reporters in, International Herald Tribune, and it's it's a big deal. You know, they, for the trials they have they've set up uh, you know the telegraph systems that are going to wire the stories to London and Paris, and it's a it's a massive story. Well, while it was going on, there was very little reporting. There was no reporting. There was one attempt I came upon a reporter trying to sneak into a meeting that he he's hearing there's a secret society, but he's blocked from doing it. Ty Cobb and Cochran were very close. Did you have any sense of what Ty Cobb might have known about this? I no sense whatsoever, um, if any. Yeah, I, I have no idea. And it's, and having talked now with, you know, Cobb family members and Cochran family members, they don't even agree on the Cobb-Cochran story. You know, the famous Cobb part of the story is that Ty was such a nice guy that later on he was writing checks to destitute ball players like Mickey Cochran and Mickey Cochran's family said, hell no, Mickey yeah. wasn't destitute, you know, nobody's writing those checks and you can't even get them to, you know, to agree on that part of it. Well, his nickname is Black Mike and it's like because of the black moves, right? I mean, sure. I, well, I, I, so I mean, uh, yeah, so Sported Gordon Cochran, his parents call him Gordon, fans call him Mickey, his friends don't call him Mickey, he's either Mike. A lot of the media guys and others who know him well might call him Black Mike. Originally, the, you know, some of it's kind of the Irish-based thing, but it is also related to his moods. He's a, he's, a, uh, you know, he's a very moody individual. Well, Connie Mack used to give him a week vacation during the season when he played in Philadelphia. When he managed, did, uh, I, I, did, did he take time off? Not, the, not usually, but the, the nervous breakdown, he yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he gets, he's refusing to get treatment. He's, he, uh, you know, it, he collapses on the field in, uh, in a game after which he hits the bases loaded inside the park home run and starts seeing spots before his eyes. The, the traditional rationale has been well, it's because he was juggling too many positions uh, with the team. He was not only manager and catcher, by that point he was the vice president dealing with the contract negotiations. And, and he had brought his one of his closest friends, Al Simmons, to the team, spent a lot of money, created dissension in the Tiger uh, clubhouse. But maybe coincidentally, at the very time he has the nervous breakdown, it's right as the Black Legion's being exposed and politicians are promising to expose everybody who has anything to do with the Black Legion. And Harry Bennett arranges after the nervous breakdown, after Mickey has spent 10 days in Henry Ford Hospital in isolation, basically, except for family, unable to read newspapers, listen to Tiger games on the radio, flies him out to Wyoming to, re, uh, to recover for weeks, you know, just uh, with uh, just a, a ranch guide and a guy who would become a four-star general, Rosie O'Donnell. That was a Real quick, um, is there any correlation between this organization and other sports in Detroit? Sorry, I missed the first part. Any correlation any, between? Between the, you know, the Black Legion and other sports in Detroit? You, you, know, you talk a lot about the Tigers, yeah, I mean, uh, I focus on the Tigers and I also focus on Joe Lewis. Uh, 
and of course the famous black boxer from Detroit, I found this wonderful interview. It was a different world in terms of the way police, media, and and uh, the uh, you know people who have been accused were uh, dealt with one another. And the police will allow people who were uh, suspected of crimes to be interviewed by the the media. And I think to make Dayton uncomfortable, there's an interview done by a guy named Russ Collins, who is one of the top black reporters, with black newspapers, and he's interviewing Dayton Dean and the police headquarters. Cowan sidelighted, this is the era before media ethics, sidelighted as, as uh, Joe Lewis's secretary and PR guy. And so he's asking him questions, well, did you guys root for uh, you know, Joe Lewis? And, and some, some police officers in the room interjects trying to, you know, because everybody loves Joe Lewis at this point in Detroit, you know he's, he's huge and he's huge nationally among the black community too, uh, and so they're trying to put a positive spin. Well, they like Joe Lewis, didn't they? They like Joe Lewis, and Dayton he says, "Well, some of them did, you know." So, <laughs> so, uh, so it comes in a, a little bit there, but I mean, Detroit had a huge Catholic population, it had a significant Jewish population. Um, I don't know that we had any. Uh, Jewish football players, you know, and the, the hockey team isn't all that diverse at all. Uh, <laughs> it never has been. But um, we, U of M had a, uh, a star quarterback who was Jewish a couple of years prior to that. By that point, he was playing for the New York team, I think. Any other questions? All right. Well, over the past month, we've had uh, sitting just about in that spot, uh, some fascinating stories by Joe Pepitone and Jim Palmer. <laughs> Tonight was extremely different and beyond fascinating. And uh, the 280 pages of this book are really terrific. And I wish you the best with this, and uh, hopefully you'll win an award. Again, the name of the book, Terror in the City of Champions, written by Tom Stanton, published by Lions Press. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks for